Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. We're back in the grotto. We are. Happy New Year. Uh, our yeah. first new pod of the year. And we have great plans for the future. We do. We have lots of plans. Um, and our little Christmas special, which was something we just thought of at the last minute. Although I think, to be fair, we should say it was our wonderful producer, Theo, who thought of it. Yes. He's got um, lots of good ideas. Uh, he has, hasn't he? And he actually added the Christmas music and he fiddled with the graphics and he took off the adverts because nobody wants to make money at Christmas. So we forgoed our normal 65 pence advertising revenue. But it was a lovely thing to do. And a lot of people really found it and enjoyed it. It's already jumped ahead of some of our favorite shows, actually. Like I know. It's extraordinary. Well, it's good. I mean, I suppose there's a great deal of interest in Wallace. And I suppose we did talk a little bit about what motivates us in, in our writing and research. And the podcast. So it was quite a useful reflection on the year, too. It was a fun conversation, and I think people enjoyed that. Um, so uh, the other thing that sort of popped up over Christmas, which I hadn't expected, and you're a bit of a, a royal family Kremlinologist, Andrew, suddenly here's the uh, Duchess of ex Duchess of York, Fergie herself, at Sandringham, I believe for the first time in 20 odd years. Oh, 30 years. The, 30 years with yep. the royals. Tell us what it means. Well, I think it was a distraction from the focus on Andrew. Andrew, there are some files supposedly due to be released uh, next week, uh, or in fact this week, um, uh, relating to Epstein. I think uh, it would have it looked the optics were better if he was happily ensconced in the family, uh, and uh, the news story was Fergie joining them rather than the fact he was there. So I think it was a distraction. I think there is a sense that they're all trying to come together. They've got to, to unite against the problems with Harry and Meghan. Uh, and the feeling is that Fergie, you know, hasn't put a foot wrong recently. Uh, and she's been working on Camilla a long time. She was there last year, but she just wasn't allowed to come to church and go public. They were testing the ground. So, uh, yes, I think she is back in the fold Um but I don't think they're going to get married, as everyone is speculating. She, she. Oh come on, Andrew! We need another royal wedding to cheer us up. Well, uh, she gets the best of both worlds. She gets uh, to live at Royal Lodge, uh, and she is allowed as a member, as not a member of the royal family, to make some money. So she's hardly going to give that up. Uh, so I don't see a change there. But um, uh, okay. there are some the, interesting. The other thing, all of the pundits were speculating about was. Um, I mean, you say that she's a kind of human shield for Andrew, which I think makes sense, given what he's facing. Um, you said that it's the family coming together against Harry and Meghan, which I guess makes sense. But is it not also a sign that, you know, these long-term estrangements can be healed? Maybe there's a message to Harry there that, let you know, let the years pass, anything can happen. 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think it, it, in, in everyone's interest, it, it it makes sense for everyone to come together, as it happens in ordinary families. People for, forgive and move on. Um, and, you know, clearly with the death of Prince Philip, who was the main problem about her being part of the celebrations, uh, and the Queen sort of deferred to him. So once the Queen had died... Oh, I see. Uh, Is that so? I didn't, I didn't know. Easier. Philip was a real hardliner when it came to Philip. Yes, he wouldn't be in the same room as her. Uh, so, for example, when she stayed at Wood Farm and the children went up to Sandringham, uh, he, the Queen would come down and have tea with them, but Prince Philip would 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 stay separate. And when she went to Balmoral, I mean, in some ways, there's some interesting observations about her visits to Balmoral. And she did go to Balmoral pretty quickly after the famous toe-sucking episode, which, of course, she learnt about when she was there. <laughs> Poor thing. Um, so, I mean, she has been within the fold for a while. But I think there's a sense that, you know, she's just recovering from breast cancer. Um, she's been very supportive of, of Andrew. And also, it's the, 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 the theory is always better to keep them in the tent than have them outside causing trouble. Mm. So, uh, And that all the way through has been a concern with her, that she would say things. Uh, some of the things I'm hoping to say in my own book later this year. Well, uh, I was going to say, all this is whetting my appetite and hopefully the listener's appetite. For your yeah. masterpiece that's due well, maybe next year. Uh, maybe next year, maybe the end of this year. I don't know. But um, that may change, you know, whether she walks to church or not. I don't know. Um, from what I'm gathering, I, I think there will be some things there that may embarrass them. And indeed, Andrew, um, there's a lot still to come out about his financial affairs. So uh, I, 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 there may need to be more forgiveness. Uh, he had promised Charles that he had nothing. There were no more skeletons in the cupboard. But I think that's not entirely true. Interesting. Well, if anybody's going to find those skeletons and rattle them in public, it will be you. So um, good luck in your researches. And maybe you can actually find out what he was doing on those trade missions at some point. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. Um, all right. Well, as a, we're starting the year um, with a little bit of royal gossip, but also uh, a substantial non-royal story this week. Um, both we're covering two scandals, actually, with one writer. And they're both stories that uh, that our listeners and viewers have asked us to investigate. Uh, do you want to in, 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 uh, sort of... Uh, yes, well, John, John Preston is the author of books on the Jeremy Thorpe scandal and on Robert Maxwell, and he's going to talk about both of them. Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party. He was implicated in a murder plot to kill um, a former lover of his, uh, and it was all a rather botched thing. But it does reveal the sort of hypocrisies of, of the 1970s. Uh, uh, Thorpe, who was married, uh, was actually bisexual, uh, and he was trying to cover this up. And then, of course, we have the, the financial scandal of, of Robert Maxwell, the mystery of his death. Robert Maxwell was the sort of Rupert Murdoch figure um, of his day, really, uh, and was a very influential former Labour MP and, and newspaper proprietor. So... Two slightly different stories, but joined by uh, uh, John Preston, who's an excellent writer, uh, who, who is a very alive to the nuances and the, 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 the sort of craziness of both stories. Yeah, well, if you've watched much British television in the last few years, you will have seen quite a lot of John's work turned into these kind of, sort of tragic comedies. Um, the Jeremy Thorpe book he wrote, A Very British Scandal, with uh, Hugh Grant. And, and memorably, um, uh, a seed involving a pillow, <laughs> which he wrote that book. He wrote a book about the John Stonehouse disappearance. Uh, and I think he's working on a book now about Elton John and his love of football in the 80s, which I, I guess... Yeah, well, I think that's out. That's out. out. Promoting it, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's what I'm going to read. Um, so, yeah, so he's, he's a sort of um, a writer who shines a light on that sort of odd decade. It's the decade of Jimmy Savile. Yeah. Numerous other stories of, of, of public figures who were hugely famous and yet had very, very dark secrets, which somehow never came out while they were alive, yeah. or at least until yeah. they were dragged into court, in Jeremy Thorpe's case. And it sort of plays up to our theme of cover-ups and hypocrisy and the establishment. Uh, so, no, really, really, I think, uh, I think it'll be a very interesting episode. Terrific. Well, it's a great way to start the year. And I gather we've managed to snare Tina Brown, going back to yes. our oil um, interests. Yes, we've got coming up Tina Brown talking about the royals, uh, Anne de Courcy talking about um, uh, Lord Snowden. She wrote the the, the, the biography of Snowden. 
Uh, we've got Neil McKenna talking about the Cleveland Street scandal. Uh, I have something that's uh, there's a bit of a coup. Tom Sykes, who's the um, a grandson of one of the potential lovers of George VI, we're talking about her connection with the family and other of George VI possible lovers. Uh, we have yeah, we, we've mentioned that the, the possibility of uh, a program on George VI um, supposed infidelities and that created lots of people saying that's just not true. No, that never happened. Him and the Queen Mother, they, they were just that rarity, a royal love match, and neither of them ever strayed. Well, maybe. Well, let's see what Tom has to say. And I think we're still uh, hoping to get Tom Bauer, perhaps talking about King Charles. Uh, we've got um, a guy called Pat Wortham, who's talking about the Oaks murder case. Uh, people have asked about this is a, a case in the Bahamas in, in, in 1943, uh, which has never been solved. So uh, a real rich variety yeah, of lots, lots of things to look forward to. And we're even t- talking about doing a breakout little mini series, which will, will be a sort of a, about a scandal, but also about um, a, a sort of very, very mysterious and exciting um, aspect of the 1940 story, an espionage tale involving a man called Tyler Kent that both Andrew and I know a lot about. Um, and that we thought that might be our first little sort of separate side project. I think it's a very clever idea. It's a great subject. Still more stuff to come out, I think. Um, and it, as you say, it has huge ramifications. I mean, you were suggesting that perhaps Joe Kennedy didn't run for president because of it. It was certainly used as a warning to those who were supporters of, of, uh, of a Nazi-led government that uh, they would be, all be locked up if they, if they tried anything. Yes. So it had much wider implications than just this... Um, uh, Code Clark, who, who was basically leaking secrets and who I interviewed, uh, or rather I was present with an interview. And I'm just trying to find that tape because that would be a bit of a coup. Yes, I'd love to hear that. This very, very, very quick, precisely. This man was arrested. He was leaking to the Nazis, spies. He worked for Joe Kennedy, America's ambassador in London. <clears throat> he had all sorts of information that was very embarrassing to Kennedy about his own flirtation with the Nazis. It's possible that this fact stopped Kennedy running for president. And on a kind of appeasement ticket. Yep. Yes, there's allegations of the Soviets were involved as well. So it's it's a wonderful melange of yeah. of intelligence and spies and the sexual blackmail, all sorts of things. So that's something else to look forward to. Yeah, and we'll have okay. lots of people talking about that. So it's a it's we're really really expanding and really enjoying this and 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 really appreciating the feedback that we're getting. We are. So that's a elongated trailer for the rest of 2024. Shall we now go and talk to John about some scandals? Let's go for it. All right. See I'm feeling later. scandalous. <laughs> Happy New Year. Well, we're thrilled to have John Preston talking about two scandals today, uh, the Jeremy Thorpe and, and, and Robert Maxwell. And I suppose the first question is, I mean, why did you choose these two subjects? What, what got you interested? Because they've been written about quite a lot. Yes, they have. I mean, the Thorpe story had always fascinated me. And I first moved to London when the trial was going on at the Old Bailey and uh, and thought was on trial for conspiracy to murder. And in those days, there were two London evening papers, the London News, the, the Evening News and the Evening Standard. And they would all publish about kind of five editions a day. And I remember being so fascinated with what was going on, that I would run from one tube station to another, hoping that another edition of the paper had come out and some other new kind of tidbit had emerged uh, from the Old Bailey. And I suppose one of the things that fascinated me about it was that (laughs) my mother, who was not a kind of unworldly person in many respects, uh, saying to me when the trial started, oh, well, Jeremy Thorpe couldn't possibly be guilty of all these dreadful things because he's an old Etonian. And I, <laughs> <laughs> Truly an age well, of innocence. Like Guy Burgess. <laughs> um, and it had always fascinated me, and I'd always had a kind of hankering to write about it, but I couldn't see how to do it. Uh, because, as you say, there had been books, perfectly good books, about the Thorpe affair before. And I said to a friend of mine who was very well read, 
do you think there's scope for another book on the Thorpe Affair? And he said, unhesitatingly, yes. And I said, why? What's wrong with the other ones? And he went, too many tangents. And I remember thinking, God, maybe he's right, actually. And if you pair the whole thing back to its kind of, you know, absolute sort of narrative spine, then maybe that's the way to do it. And by an astonishing coincidence, I, th- th- that happened. And then two other things happened in very, very close proximity to one another, which was that I'd always known about Peter Bessel, who was Thorpe's best friend, who then became uh, the Judas figure, as it were, and, the, and was the chief prosecution, pr- prosecution witness against Thorpe at the Old Bailey. And I knew that Bessel had written a privately printed memoir but I couldn't get hold of it anywhere. And then I did manage to track one down, bizarrely, in South Africa and got hold of it and read it. And it was kind of complete dynamite. And I realised that actually people had previously tended to think of Bessel as this rather peripheral figure. And I realised that he was absolutely central to the whole thing. And then about a week later, a friend of mine, another friend of mine, uh, said, oh, you know, you've always been interested in the Jeremy Thorpe affair. Do you want to meet Norman Scott, who was Thorpe's erstwhile lover, who Thorpe tried to get bumped off? And it turned out that Norman was living in the same village as his sister-in-law. Because so, for our foreign listeners, perhaps you should just give a quick outline of, of what the Jeremy Thorpe story is, really. Essentially what happened was that Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party in the early 1970s. And he, the Liberal Party was not terribly important in terms of it was the smallest of the three main political parties. But there was such political chaos at the time that, um, that even though they only had about 10 or 14 seats, they knew that they could hold um, the whip hand, as it were, in any government. Um, and so they actually had an importance that was out of all proportion to, to how many seats they had. Jeremy Thorpe was gay or bisexual and had had a, um, a gay relationship with this man, Norman Scott, who uh, then felt that he'd been treated very badly by Thorpe and started sounding off about how all his misfortunes had resulted from his relationship with Thorpe. And this went on for really quite a long time. And Thorpe became more and more exasperated and eventually snapped and siphoned off £10,000, a lot of money, from Liberal Party finances to pay a hitman to bump off to kill Norman Scott. Um, and that's where the whole sorry saga essentially originates. Gosh, and I mean, how would you describe it? I mean, it's a sort of it's it's a book about class. It's a book. It's a sort of black comedy in some respects. Yeah, it's a very it's actually a very funny book, and it made a very funny uh, TV series for which many congratulations, by the way, from this satisfied viewer. That's very good to hear. I mean, I think that one of the things that most appealed to me about it was that nature or reality pretty seldom dishes up a story where you've got tragedy and farce in almost equally measured proportions. Um, But with Thorpe, there was beneath, if you were to strip all the many, many farcical elements out of the story, um, yeah, this is something that ruined the lives of everybody who became touched by it. And so I wanted to, to, to capture both the farce and the poignancy of it. I mean, even, they even tried to shoot um, a dog, didn't they, at one point? Basically, what happened was that after the money had been siphoned off from Liberal Party finances, um, the, the liberals who were as incompetent at finding a hitman as they were about pretty well everything else in British politics uh, found the, probably the world's most incompetent hitman who managed 
to uh, fail to kill Norman Scott, but did actually succeed in killing his dog, a Great Dane called Rinka. So, yes. Right, gosh. And then the, the trial took place and everyone thought Jeremy thought would be convicted. And he basically got off I mean, through having a good lawyer and a, and a, and a judge who was, shall we say, a little bit biased. Yeah, this, the, the trial was, uh, there were many, many quite well-founded allegations that the trial had, in effect, been rigged. Um, and there's no question that the judge was, who was a crashing snob, incidentally, so was, was kind of uh, more likely to favour Thorpe. Who, who was a kind of, uh, for all his political liberalism, was a staunchly establishment figure. He'd been to Eton and all the rest of it. Um, so the judge was, was unquestionably on Thorpe's side and, and violently against uh, all the prosecution witnesses, um, including, of course, Norman Scott. Um, and Thorpe did indeed have a brilliant barrister um and 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 actually i suspect with the wisdom of hindsight that even if the judge hadn't been as biased as he unquestionably was thorpe's barrister probably would have succeeded in getting him off but the barrister was a sort of wife beater wasn't he uh, the barrister was a wife beater a drunk a compulsive gambler um but he was a brilliant barrister. And essentially, yeah, there were three main prosecution witnesses against Thorpe. And the uh, barrister, George Carmen worked out that really all he had to do, uh, all three of these prosecution witnesses were, in their own way, astonishingly dodgy. And Carmen worked out that if he could prove that the three of them had lied in the past, which really wasn't that hard. There was nothing to say that they weren't lying in court. So he, he set out specifically to demolish each one of them, which he duly did. What was his theory that he persuaded the jury to explain the the shooting of the dog, for example? Was it, what, Did he say that had nothing to do with Thorpe? Or did he say that, yes, it had something to do with him, but it was never intended to be anything other than a warning? I'm just trying to... I think that essentially um, he managed to persuade the jury <laughs> that it all been part of an elaborate, frightening job with right. no malice uh, intended towards Norman Scott. And that, uh, yes, it, would, it, it was very unfortunate the dog had been killed... But that, that was really the only thing that um, the hitman, Andrew Gino Newton, a man known with ample justification to his friends as Chicken Brain, uh, <laughs> had, uh, had had in mind. And the jury, you know, astonishingly bought it. Uh, but the, the summing up, though, of course, very famously, well, I'm going to put a link to this into the bio of this programme, the, the summing up by the judge, is a sort of absolute classic of, of, of English British hypocrisy, and it was satirised famously by Peter Cook. Yes, absolutely hysterical and a very, very accurate parody. Um, and yet, it seems a long time ago that, that sort of thing was yes. just accepted. He accused Norman Scott of being a whinger, a sponger, a parasite, um, a fantasist, um, but he also accused another of the prosecution witnesses as being the sort of man who would have had a cocktail bar in his living room. <laughs> um, uh, that underpinned the whole thing. Um, what, what do you think? I mean, how did you see it? What, what's the sort of significance of the case? I mean, why are we still discussing it four years later? Um, I think there was Alan Bennett who said that there's no period more boring than the recent past. But then you kind of go back and you come to sort of tilt over an indefinable point 
where it goes and it becomes history. And then it does become interesting, particularly if there's a considerable difference between the way we did things then and we, the way we do them now. And I think the key, uh, the key thing in the Thorpe affair was none of this whole sorry saga would ever have happened if the prejudice against homosexuality hadn't been quite so deep and ingrained. Now, homosexuality had actually been decriminalised in, I think, 1968. However, that didn't mean the prejudice against homosexuality magically went away overnight. Indeed, in many respects, life for gay men became more difficult uh, in the years following decriminalisation because their, their heads, as it were, were now sort of stuck invitingly over the parapet uh, for people to lob coconuts or whatever else they chose to lob at them. And the Thorpe was absolutely terrified, and with good reason, um, about his homosexual past ever coming out, because he knew that if it did come out, his political career would be absolutely finished. And if you... I mean, I knew comparatively little about the fight to get homosexuality decriminalised. Um, and it proved to be much, much more interesting and, and bizarre than I'd ever anticipated. I mean... Well, Lord uh, and the Badgers. Exactly. Well, you've got, you basically had, you had people like Lord Montgomery of Alamein, who's the great British, Second World War British uh, hero, won the Battle of Alamein and so on and so forth. And uh, Montgomery stood up in the House of Lords and said that homosexuality was the most disgusting, bestial thing you've ever been able to imagine. And that if homosexuality was to be decriminalised, then the age of consent should be set at 80. That way that people pay any blackmail demands out of their old age pension. And no, but they were right. I mean, Jeremy Thorpe was right to be worried. There were no openly gay politicians. And it was, what, four years later, the uh, Bermondsey by-election, do you remember that? Peter Tatchell tried yeah, to yeah. be elected in the safe Labour seat. And he lost it, and the entire campaign against him in the papers was, we don't want a gay person as an MP. Extraordinary. And, and actually, the, the, there was an extraordinary alliance between two people um, that, that, that essentially got um, homosexuality decriminalised. And there was a, a liberal MP called Leo Absey, and there was a man called uh, Lord Aaron, as, as, as you say, um, who was a very, very unlikely advocate for gay rights since he had only ever given, the only speeches he'd ever given in the House of Lords were exclusively about the rights of badges. And he <laughs> in their house, uh, and they had the ring of the house, and any, any, they had the run of the house, sorry, and any visitors had to put on Wellington boots because the badgers would bite their ankle and I think spread ringworm or there was some particularly nasty complaint that badgers um, were susceptible to and that Lord Aaron had it turned out had had a brother an older brother who was gay and had acceded to the peerage um, but was absolutely dogged by guilt over its homosexuality and had committed suicide and Lord Aaron wanted to do something in his memory. Gosh, that has a poignant story. And then moving on to, to, to Maxwell, I mean, what was the, the interest there? I mean, what do you think perhaps joins the two of them? I mean, are they both fantasists? Are they self-entitled, unself-aware? I think they were both fantasists. Neither of them had any discernible moral centre. I think that they were both extraordinarily adept at getting other people 
to do their dirty work for them and in very different ways they were both outsiders i know i've said that thorpe was an establishment figure but because of his homosexuality he did very much see himself as an outsider um but i think i'm just trying to think if uh there are any other obvious factors um i mean i had been again fascinated by maxwell because he was such a in my youth comparative youth such a dominant figure and 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 again you know it, to, to say the whole thing about the whole alan bennett thing about uh you know, going back and um, and the recent past becoming history. I suppose the big difference between then and now in the Maxwell case is the way in which power was wielded then is very different to the way in which power is wielded now. Um, what you have to realise is that Maxwell, because he owned the Daily Mirror, which was the um, the one British paper that supported staunchly supported the Labour Party. And his arch nemesis, Rupert Murdoch, who owned the Sun, which of course supported the Conservative Party, they really were the they kind of held the strings of, of British politics because the Labour Party knew that they could never be elected or re-elected without the support of the Mirror, and the same was true of um, of Murdoch and the Sun. Um, so that fascinated me, and I was kind of intrigued by how Maxwell was this bizarre mixture of a kind of figure from Italian comic opera on the one hand and something out of The Godfather on the other. Because I mean, uh, Again, for the listeners, could you give a quick exposition of, 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 of sort of what the book's about? It's called The Fall. And it's yeah. always it's like the thought book. It is about a fall from grace, really. It is about a fall from grace. I mean, Maxwell was born uh, in Czechoslovakia, as it then was. Uh, he was. Uh, he came from a Jewish family. Um, he left the tiny, very, very impoverished village where he grew up just um, on the eve of uh, the Second World War. And he joined up uh, with the British Army, where he actually had a remarkably successful career and won the Military Cross, which was won down from the Victoria Cross. So he was unquestionably very brave. And whilst he was away, um, his parents, his grandparents, and I think four or five of his siblings all died in Auschwitz. And... Whatever you may think of Maxwell uh, as a complete rogue and bounder and all the rest of it, I think that's the prism that you have to see him through. And having joined the British Army, he rose up through the ranks, won the military cross, and um, landed up in post-war London, uh, where he set himself up as a publisher with the help of... MI5, for whom he had been doing quite a lot of work in Berlin, and MI5, MI6, um, both of them. And uh How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, he rapidly became the biggest um, publisher or biggest magazine, scientific, publisher of scientific journals in the world. And it was then an astonishingly lucrative trade um, because every academic institution felt they had to subscribe to these journals. So uh, it was a bit like a sort of old-fashioned encyclopedia contract that once you sort of bought into this thing, you were, you were stuck for life. And uh, Maxwell became an MP Became absolute, was absolutely convinced that he was going to become prime minister, which he didn't, of course, become, nor did he become a Labour minister. Um, and he always flew astonishingly close to the wind in his business dealings and in every other aspect of his life. And he finally succeeded in buying the Daily Mirror in 1988. And throughout his adult career, Maxwell had been obsessed with Rupert Murdoch and really uh, strived to match him step for step. And if it had been a boxing match, Maxwell would have lost every round. But they were, they were a kind of, you know, it was a remarkable thing that, they had the same initials, they were in the same profession, um, and they each, to some extent, as the other's nemesis. And in trying to match Murdoch, particularly in America, um, uh, Maxwell set in train a chain of events which led to his mental and physical disintegration, his bankruptcy, uh, and indeed his death. And his death, I mean, is, do you think it was an accident? Do you think it was suicide, murder? Well, I remember when I was doing the book, lots of people would tell me, with, yeah, in voices kind of completely unclouded by doubt, that Maxwell had been bumped off by various people, Mossad were usually at the top of the list. Um, and while it's unquestionably true that there were no, there was no shortage of people who would have been only too happy to have bumped off Maxwell, there's no evidence whatsoever that he was bumped off. So that essentially leaves, you know, uh, was it suicide or was it an accident? Uh, if it was an accident, it was an astonishingly fortuitous accident because um, by the time he died, Maxwell knew that the game was up, that his empire was on the verge of total implosion and indeed it's, it just it completely fell apart and he became the world's biggest ever bankrupt um, uh, in the days and weeks following his death. Um, and he also knew that he was going, almost certainly going to go to prison, which, uh, although he had skin like a rhinoceros in many respects, I think uh, would have just um, crucified him in terms of public humiliation. Um, there's no actual evidence to say categorically that he committed suicide, partly because 
the uh, he died. Um, he fell off his boat or jumped off his boat, uh, which was cruising around the Canary Islands at the time, and um, it fell within the jurisdiction of the Spanish authorities, who completely botched the post mortem. Um, there was then another post-mortem done on the eve of his funeral in Tel Aviv, but neither of them were able to ascertain uh, with any real degree of certainty what had actually happened. My own feeling is that um, the line between an accident and suicide might be a lot narrower and more wobbly than we tend to assume. So I don't think he went on the boat uh, intending to commit suicide. Um, and indeed, it's not inconceivable that he fell over the back of the boat because he was an extremely fat man. And he was prone to having a pee over the side of it at night. And yet I can't really rule out some suicidal intent. Because wasn't there, I mean, uh, it, it looked like he tried to clamber back on board. Weren't there sort of muscles that were sort of yeah. stretched, or is that, is that a myth? No, that's not a myth at all. But um, whilst he, uh, the theory was that he uh, he had torn muscles in his shoulder suggesting that he tried to hang on to the boat and because he was so large um his own weight as it were dragged him down but um uh on his boat called the lady Ghislaine, named after his youngest child and, and favorite um Ghislaine maxwell who of course has had many many troubles of her own um come on to that <laughs> There was only one way of getting onto the back deck, which is where he fell overboard from. And that was through Maxwell's cabin. And um, he, it turned out that he had locked um, the back door. And he'd also locked the front door, which was, which, um, was accessed from the rest of the boat. Um, so the, 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 the clear thinking, I think, was that he wanted to people to um not find him quickly not find him quickly exactly um and and indeed and, and you know maxwell was a man who was constantly changing his mind about things um so you know it's not inconceivable that he jumped and then changed his mind a lot of people do a lot of surprising number of people um, who try to commit suicide or indeed do commit suicide do change to try and change their minds just, just going back a little bit to his when he was as you say so powerful and influential yeah. especially in the labor party i remember covering labor conferences in that time and you know he, he what max was doing and who he was entertaining was was was, was the focus of many people's minds do you think those labor ministers who were his friends did they know that he was kind of corrupt that he was siphoning money from the pension fund and looked the other way? Or was it all a sort of dark secret? He didn't have any friends. He had kind of, you know, allies. Um, I mean, I remember talking to Neil Kinnock, who was leader of the Labour Party at the time, who said um, it was a nightmare because you were constantly treading on eggshells, trying to appease Maxwell. Well, essentially to keep on the right side of Maxwell, uh, because you knew that if you didn't stay on the right side of Maxwell, he could make your life absolute hell. And even Peter Mandelson, you know, who was christened the Prince of Darkness for a very good reason, um, said to me that he'd always been terrified of, of, of Maxwell. And, you know, he was an extremely intimidating figure. Um, and Glenys Kinnock, Neil Kinnock's wife, um, would always make sure that she turned up at 
Labour Party or Daily or Mirror banquets where Mirror, where Maxwell was going to be. And if she found out she was sitting next to Maxwell, she would change the place seat seating <laughs> so away from her as possible. But as you say, you know, people needed to stay within his orbit. And that was what Maxwell relished most of all. I mean, uh, you can, did Murdoch or Maxwell have an ideological bone in their body? Not really, I would say. Uh, it was just pure expediency for both of them. So um, what, what led him, do you think, to taking the step from just being a sort of slightly shady businessman and fixer and bully into actually stealing from his own staff? Was he just, did he have no choice? I think you have to realise that um, that the legal situation surrounding um, uh, taking money from pension funds was much, much more blurred than people tend to realise now. And when Maxwell uh, bought the mirror, uh, he boasted openly that this gave him access to the pension funds. And he made no secret of the fact that he had dipped into the pension funds um, and indeed, the, the Mirror pensioners did very well out of it to begin with. So they didn't complain. Um, and the whole of Maxwell's business empire was incredibly complex, whereby there was a whole a raft of different companies on the private side of his affairs and on the public side of his affairs who were called almost identical things. Um, so it was very, very difficult to trace money, you know, to actually follow a paper trail, as it were, from one account to another. Um, and it wasn't really until Maxwell made a catastrophic mistake in... So I think he bought the mirror, I think, in 85. Sorry, I don't know if I got that right. And then in 88... He bought an American publisher, Macmillan, not the same Macmillan as the British publisher. Um, and he paid way, way, way over the odds for it. And he did that because he wanted to go toe to toe with Rupert Murdoch in the States. At the time, Murdoch was well established in the States, although, of course, this predated all his television channels and Fox News and all the rest of it. But Maxwell had virtually no presence in the States whatsoever. So he was hoping that by buying Macmillan, that would enable them to go toe-to-toe in, as it were, the biggest arena of all. And I remember Maxwell's son, Ian, who I spent a lot of time with um, when I was researching the book, Ian Maxwell saying to me, what you have to remember is there was a time when it was as if the only two people in the world breathing the same air were my father and Rupert Murdoch. And it was as if the two of them, these kind of big titans slugging it out mm. Mount Everest. Um, and, um, but as soon as Maxwell bought Macmillan, everything started to disintegrate. Uh, there was a recession, interest rates shot up, um, and he'd already been shuttling money around from one part of his empire to shore up another bit that was in bad shape. Um, and so the, the whole kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul was quite a sort of well-established technique for him. But it then turned into this kind of mad gavotte with money just kind of wildly shifting hands. And he must have known that it was impossible to keep up. Um, but, but, you know, so, it, and then, and then, as you rightly say, you know, the great, uh, the, the dreadful crime, one of the, the most dreadful crime uh, that he was 
accused and effectively found guilty of was looting the pension funds. Um, but bizarrely, that wasn't quite as clear-cut in terms of legality as you might think. I see. That's interesting. Did they ever get their money back, the pensioners, by the way? Most of them got a pretty substantial whack of it back, um, given mainly by city companies who felt rather abashed that they'd sucked up to Maxwell quite so brazenly uh, <laughs> his death. I mean, the other victims were, of course, his family. Um, you know, I think a number of the children cooperated with you. And I mean, Ghislaine, in some ways, most of all, and I mean, clearly this brings the story up to the present day. I mean, how much of an influence was, was he on her behaviour? Because clearly her behaviour with Epstein um, has now come in for a lot of criticism. I think that, she, as I said, she was the youngest. Um, and she was Maxwell's favourite, no question about that. Um, and she was the only one who was really adept at diffusing Maxwell's rages. Um, the other children lived in constant fear of Maxwell flying off the handle about one thing or another. And Ghislaine, who I think was also in a way frightened of her father, but knew how to manipulate him. Um, but I think that in some respects, she was as scarred as the rest of them by her upbringing. Um, she was born um, either a week or two weeks after Maxwell's oldest child, a uh, son, who would, would, of course, been the heir apparent to the Maxwell empire as it had then become. Uh, he was very, very badly injured in a car crash and was in a coma for the next seven years and eventually died. And um, Ghislaine's early years were completely overshadowed by this sort of pall of grief that sat over the family. And she had anorexia as a very young child. And I remember Betty Maxwell, um, wrote in her memoir, this is Robert Maxwell's wife, that when Ghislaine was about three or four, she stamped her foot and said in a loud voice, Mummy, I exist. Uh, so she, you know, I think behind that very Maxwellian brass neck, um, there were many less visible vulnerabilities. Now, to what is he became a sort of father? I mean, it was the sort of father figure in some ways, wasn't he? To he her. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, um, <laughs> when Maxwell died, all the children thought that they were going to be pretty well provided for. And it quickly became apparent that they weren't going to be well provided for at all. And although there were many, many rumours that Maxwell had salted away lots of money in Liechtenstein, I don't believe that's true. Although he had certainly salted money away in Liechtenstein in the past, but I think that had all gone by the time he died. Um, and so it came as a terrible shock uh, to all the children that their father was a bankrupt. But I think it came as a greater shock to Ghislaine than any of the others, who, because Ghislaine had developed very expensive tastes, and uh, the idea of having to, as it were, recut her cloth to adjust to these reduced circumstances 
was um, kind of anathema to her. Um, and I think that in some respects anyway, she battened on to Epstein um, because he had lots and lots of money and allowed her to carry on living in the style to which she'd very much become accustomed. And what did she bring to Epstein? I mean, was it contacts? Was it a, a softening of his? Yes, I think contacts. And um, and I think she facilitated a lot of his sexual requirements as he saw them. Uh, I mean, uh, certainly if you believe the evidence in the trial, which is, you know, there's plenty of evidence, uh, you know, she would recruit these girls um, from the poorer parts of um, Miami. But they would sort of cheat by jowl where Epstein lived. And um, I mean, it's complicated because I think she did love it love Epstein and they were you know they were a couple for a while and then it just became more and more curdled and I think that she couldn't break away and as far as Epstein was concerned you know he was from not exactly the wrong side of the tracks, but pretty much. <coughs> Excuse me. And she had an address book absolutely stuffed with, you know, the names and numbers of, uh, of the very, very... Prince Andrew. That, that would be one of them, yes. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, you know, she brought Epstein a kind of social cachet that he would never have otherwise been able to get. And what's her future now, do you think? Well, she's about to launch an appeal, or so I understand it. And um, I don't know. Um, I think her future looks pretty bleak. Um, But it's not inconceivable that the guilty verdict could be overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, And indeed, once she served a certain chunk of her sentence, which I think is something like five or six years, she could apply to serve the rest of it over here. And if that happened, she would become, as, as I understand it, eligible for parole under the British system of law, whereas, of course, there essentially isn't a parole system in America. So she could be out, um, you know, sooner than people tend to realise. It did did strike us that uh, the subject of the fall of a a colourful, corrupt man surrounded by famous people on all sides might be the subject for your next book, given (laughs) the things you've written about before. Could you see yourself taking on Epstein? No, I don't. I mean, I think that um, Maxwell and Thorpe may have been in their own particular ways pretty dreadful people. But both of them had chinks of vulnerability that make them not necessarily engaging but it is, admittedly, with some kind of kind of following wind, um, possible to feel a glimmer of sympathy for them. Um, I would, I mean, Epstein, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the points reviews make about the books that you're very balanced, and you also you do bring out sides to them. I mean, you talked about the Holocaust with Maxwell and 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 the coma. Uh, of the eldest son. I mean, you are trying to see them in the round and explain them uh, and show their attra- the more attractive sides. I mean, is that something that you very consciously aim to do? I, I try not to judge people that I write about because I don't feel that that's my job. And I know, of course, that it's 
you know, it's an impossibility to say one's ever completely objective. Um, but I do feel that it's up to the reader insofar as it's possible to make their own minds up about people. I suspect it's a legacy of my having spent so long as a journalist and, and pointing accusing fingers at people the whole time and um, and being a bit sort of disinclined to do it now. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you're quite right. I would find it very difficult to write about somebody who I didn't consider to have any redeeming features whatsoever. That said, you know, you need a pretty powerful magnifying glass to see the redeeming features in either Thorpe and Maxwell. And what surprised you about each of them? And were the things you discovered that you hadn't expected to? Um, I think that what surprised me most of all about Maxwell was that he never really knew who he was. Yeah, this was a man who changed his name, I think, four times by the time he was 21. And he spent his entire life trying to be something that he wasn't. And I think that caught up with him um, and, and was a source of, I mean, he was not in any way an introspective man, um, but I think that the story of Maxwell is like a sort of awful morality tale of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. And I think that however unintrospective Maxwell was, I think there was some awareness that inside of him there was this kind of hole that no amount of money, power, food, sex, drink or anything else could actually fill. And the older he became the more of a kind of yawning chasm that became. Um, and I think that Thorpe also, in some respects, of course, was trying to be someone that he wasn't and had to conceal his true identity. Um, and I think the... The cost that that the pressures of having to lead that kind of life um, took a greater toll on Thorpe than I than I'd ever realised to begin with. Well, he lived on and died of old age. I mean, quietly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he actually died of Parkinson's. He had Parkinson's for the last 30 years of his life. And I always had a feeling, I have to say completely unbacked up by any evidence, that the stress of everything that had happened to him might have had something to do with the onset of his Parkinson's. Um, And he... Yeah, you know, the, 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 perhaps the remark, most remarkable thing about Thorpe was that although he was found not guilty at his trial, everyone essentially behaved as if he had been found guilty. So he lived uh, the last 30 years of his life in this kind of twilight world where he was shunned by his former colleagues. Um, and he was sort of pathetically was trying to get a peerage the whole time and the Liberal Party blocked it at every turn. Um, he was very lucky in that. Um, uh, it's another of the many bizarre things about thought that he actually had two very successful marriages. Um, and uh, his second wife nursed him devotedly. Um, and they died within just a few months of one another. Um, and I feel that whatever... awful things Thorpe did 
you know, my God, he paid a heavy price for it. Mm. No, they're yeah. both sad stories in some respects. And have you plans for another book like this? Because, I mean, you're no. also a novelist. Well, uh, yes, I know. I'd rather kind of... <laughs> I don't know whether I've given up writing novels or they've given me up. Um, I, I mean, I've just done a book at the moment which is very different. It was about a friendship between Elton John and uh, Graham Taylor, the manager of Watford Football Club in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and I'm writing... So, to- you were the ghostwriter for Elton John, weren't you? No, I wasn't a ghostwriter, actually. I was. Um, it's a book that's written in collaboration with Elton John. So it's by me, um, but with a collaboration with Elton John on the cover. That sounds really interesting. Uh, and that's a kind of fairy tale, actually, although it's a fairy tale set against a very grim backdrop of Britain in the late 70s and early 80s. So I've done that, and I'm doing a three-part drama series about the Liz Trust Premiership at the moment. Gosh, uh, that'll last longer than the Premiership, won't it? Much longer. Yes, I mean, there's a bit of a race to get it done. Um, so uh, I'm hard at work on that. Fantastic project. And we, I really enjoyed the Stone House oh, and how you felt that that turned out as a TV project, but it was still went down well in the Craig household. Yes, I mean... Um, I'm beginning to think I'm running short of yeah, 1970s miscreants. Um, <laughs> uh, so I may have to kind of uh, do some nimble footwork. Bob, not... Bob Boothby will pass you. Or... Well, I mean, yeah, it's pretty hard to find any redeeming features in Lord Boothby. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, it's so nice to so, hey, you know, meet, meet you and uh, have the chance to thank you for all the entertainment you've given us. I mean, it's a funny genre you've sort of pioneered, I think, really, the sort of tragic comedy of uh, recent years. Well, rogues, rogues, well, rogues, rogues yeah. make the best subjects, don't they? Much more interesting. Yeah, that, of course. Yeah, I like rogues. They're much more fun. Of course they are. You know... Yes. It's, it's, there's probably a little bit of subliminal where we're all slightly living vicariously through these people, lives that we wouldn't dream of having ourselves. Exactly. I'm a sort of pathetically you know, timid, law-abiding person, but there's obviously some kind of hidden corner of my psyche which um, uh, yearns to be some pantomime villain. <laughs> well, that sounds a good, good line to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What an interesting conversation. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.